Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guests today are LA Galaxy's Javier Chicharito Hernandez and author Ryan O'Hanlon. Before we get going, you can sign up free or paid for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. We are less than one month away from World Cup 2022, so sign up now if you haven't already. That's grantwall.com. Now, here's my interview with Chicharito Hernandez. The LA Galaxy meets crosstown rival LAFC in an MLS quarterfinal on Thursday night at 10.25 p.m. Eastern on FS1 and Fox Deportes. Our guest now is Javier Chicharito Hernandez of the LA Galaxy. Javier, it's great to speak to you again. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Brent. So I am legit excited about this game on Thursday. I was at the U.S. Open Cup game earlier this year between your two teams, LA Galaxy and LAFC. It got really nasty during the game and after the final whistle when your team won. How much do your two teams dislike each other? I mean, it's a way of of, of putting the, the, the question, but I don't care how much we dislike or not. We just want to win, you know. They are in our way to the six, so it doesn't matter who's going to be in front of us. We want to go there and try to win, you know. Uh, the fortunate thing was that we're going to play in L.A. It's not in our home. It's not in our stadium. We're going to play in our city, so we're glad about that. But, yeah, the rivalry, you know how intense it is, so... We're very happy that everyone, same as us, we're going to leave that experience. So there is a famous photograph of you and LAFC's Carlos Vela together at the Chivas Academy in 2003. You're 15 years old in the photograph. He is 14. What do you remember first thinking about Carlos Vela in those days when you were 15 years old? Uh, He was going to be one of the greatest, for sure. In the way that he was playing, he was playing with all these uh, players like myself and, uh, and, and another, uh, against other teams and his talent and everything was just like like amazing, you know, even difficult to describe that he was with so much composure, so much talent. The the IQ about the game that he had is since then, it's been amazing. That's why the career that he that he had already and why he's one of the of the from my, my point of view, one of the greatest Mexican players ever. Now that you and Carlos Vela have played in World Cups together, now that you are the two biggest soccer stars in Los Angeles, how would you describe your relationship these days? Great, same, good. I think uh, it's been a little bit complicated uh, because of COVID, you know, because when I arrive over here, all the COVID situation, then he's having, he has uh, his uh, sons, his kids, or his uh, son and his daughter, then then yeah, we haven't uh, spending that much time that we would love to, but we've been in contact so much time, and then in the last three games that we play against each other after the game, we uh, catch up over here like 10, 20 minutes just chatting after the games. And, you know, that, that relationship is going gonna, gonna to last uh, forever, you know, because we admire each other, we love each other, we know uh, how much we both experience in our own careers and as well together, like you said, in the World Cups and then in the national team and then as well here, no, even though that we are rivals. Uh, the admiration, the respect is going to be over there always. I always like asking this question. Uh, in your opinion, what is the identity of this LA Galaxy team? Uh, I think the identity of this team is resilience, for sure. That I will, I will, I will call. I, will, I want to use that word because it's going to be. It's one of our most like important values inside our team. You know, because uh, last season we couldn't draw so many, so many games. Because as you seen as an example only, because we didn't have that resilience, that maturity of when someone scores first, it's still uh, as many times as 
is left in the in the club to, to try to maintain uh, our style of play, maintain our mindset, maintain our focus to try to to come back from from those games. And you can see in the last run of the eleven or twelve games that we had in this season, you know, with a lot of draws, with a lot of victories, and just one a, a very difficult and painful loss in Vancouver. You know, so yeah, that's that's what I think the the the, the entity is over there, and I think as well. A lot of teams uh, see, see us like that, you know, because we they all know that we have a lot of talent. They all know that we can have a good day. But, uh, yeah, last season, in the beginning of this season, they knew that if they score first, probably they will win the, the, the games, you know. But now it's completely the opposite. No, now we can come back, as you can see in Houston and the last games that I mentioned before. So, yeah, I think that the entity is about resilience, it's about that character and consistency we want to show. It really seems like Ricky Pooj in particular has made a big impact on this Galaxy team since arriving this summer. What have you learned about Ricky so far? Sure, and Gaston and, and, and Martin. You know, I think that uh, center-like line that we said in Mexico that we spoke one before the World Cup, uh, it's columna vertebral, I don't know how to say it, like, uh, how do you say it in, in, in English? But it's like since the goalkeeper until the striker, most of, most of those players need to be like the... The, the spine. Most, like, yeah, the spine, exactly, of soccer. You know, with the goalkeeper, central central defender, central midfielder, number 10, or, or if you play with number 10, or just a striker or strikers, you know? So those are very important ones, and I think these guys came to, to yeah, to like glue us in inside and outside the, the field as well, because the character as well that, that they... Uh, brought with them it's amazing outside you know we have so much fun even though they don't speak uh, so much english yet but with the spanish uh, uh, speakers over here we joke a lot we take accountable in a better way their their european experience as well and and, and international as well is very big so yeah same as ricky martin and gaston and as well so someone that i that i mentioned as well uh, before the other game in nashville that i want to to mention is douglas costa as well the way that he's been improving the way that he's uh, committing to, to to the cause, you know, uh, because uh, people think that it's very easy to come here and just start scoring and making assists very easy, and, and and we all realize that it's not that easy this league, you know, as, as a lot of people want to portray it. So yeah, I think Dulas Costa is being as well pretty well. He's been improving a lot, and he's given us a lot of his talent and working. Now, as someone who played for Manchester United and Real Madrid, the world's two biggest clubs during the satellite television era. You are, I would argue, the most recognizable Mexican person in the history of the world to more human beings. Oh <laughs> what is it like I for you? I about that, but thank you. I mean, like, think about it. Who else would be? I mean, these are the two biggest clubs in the world. What is that like for you to live that, being the most recognizable Mexican person basically in the history of the world? Mm. With a lot of calm and with a lot of like, I don't know, like, yeah, humbleness and not, humble, not, not this fake humbleness. What, I'm, what I mean with humbleness is like, I don't feel that I have more value or less value than any other human being. You know, I don't care. Fame, I realize, uh, thankfully, with my grandfather and with my dad, that fame is a, is a tool. Fame is something that you can utilize in with, with good causes, uh, create good impact. You know, about fame is only about that, you know, because then in the end, yeah, you need to be yourself. You need to be authentic. You need to be live, live your life in the way that you want to live it, regardless if people like what you do, what you decide or not, you know? So, yeah, speaking about my, my profession and my job, I think I had a lot of very solid foundations from my family, you know, that they teach me all the things that a lot of soccer players don't learn, that it's more in the in the outside of the of the game, you know? A part of my, my, my grandfather, 
uh, and my and my father that they were very uh, focused on the inside of the field, but as well outside of the field, those two and then the feminine side on my on my family they were crucial. You know, they were crucial to to just make me feel that it doesn't matter how how many goals I scored, it doesn't matter how many people know me. Like like, like you mentioned, I'm still Javier Hernandez, Chicharito, whatever you want to call me, and and this and this realis- realization that I that I got. Uh, after I played with those teams and stuff, it's like, yeah, what's next? You know, it's just what's next because after after those those teams, even even when you retire, what's next? You know, we are soccer players for just a period of time. You know, so yeah, we need we need to be very focused that and don't forget that we're human beings that we play soccer, not the other way around. So, how is the human being, Javier? enjoying Los Angeles. You've been there for almost three years. What Are there some things that you do in Los Angeles that you maybe didn't do when you lived in Europe? No, it's not, it's not about doing things. It's 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 the conscious that I realized. You know, this city brought me my, my, my daughter as well. She born over here two years ago. Had the opportunity to be in the biggest organization uh, in, in, in the MLS, in the way the MLS uh, uh, trust in me as well as, as this organization, the way that they want to, to, to make this league more exposed internationally and they want to grow a lot. So, man, I mean, I mean, just enjoying a lot of my life. It's not about how much I do, how much I don't do, because honestly, the prices to pay to try to be one of the best players over here, it's my dedication, it's my professionalism, it's the time that I uh, spend apart after after trainings over here in the way that I take care of my body in the way that I train double sessions in the in the in the afternoons in the way that that I try to to organize my life so the main focus is is just soccer you know my mental training my emotional training as well so yeah I mean this this city brought me uh, a lot of of consciousness about myself what I want to do with my life and as and that's the same that I've been doing, just with a lot of maturity and with and with other decisions and with more self-esteem, I can say uh, that yeah, I want to enjoy. I want to give all every single day. I want to to push myself uh, beyond those limits that my mind sometimes tell me. You know, to just keep growing and to try to be the, the best version of myself every single day. You've had a great season. Eighteen goals in MLS this season. You're Mexico's all-time leading goal scorer. Mexico needs goals. Tata Martino says he will not bring you to the World Cup next month. What is the feeling that you have because of this? Well, I mean, the feeling is like I wish them the best. I hope uh, uh, we as a, as, a, as a country can break that taboo kind of thing about the fifth game, you know, so he can just go through that and then they can qualify and they can go as far as they can. And yes, as a soccer player, obviously, you always want to play World Cups. You always want to be involved with the national team. But as well, you need to respect it when, when you are not taking it in consideration, you know. So we need to move on. I need to focus on myself and I need to keep uh, playing in the best way possible if I want to, to be calling up in the future. I guess that was one question I have. You have not retired from the Mexican national team. No. And I figure that's for a reason. So where do you stand on that? Same that I haven't retired from the national team. I will see in the future. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Moving on here. In terms of if this game against LAFC, which is going to be watched by many people, if this game goes to penalty kicks, would you consider taking a panenka? After I will consider taking a panenka? <laughs> yeah. We'll see as well. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I guess my question for you is, is so much, you've had so much success in your career, but in soccer itself, the sport itself is about so much, so many little failures by everybody, right? 
losing life the is about that life is about the mis- what what you do with your mistakes and you can see the mamba mentality you can speak with lebron james you can speak with derek jeter that i'm watching his documentary now with tom brady but a lot of people that are just the greatest of the greatest in their sports it's just like it's what you do with the mistakes that's the thing it's not about what you do with the success because success is not infinite as as well as as the as the mistakes you're going to keep making mistakes the problem is how you learn from them and another thing that i i learned a lot uh, since i was a kid that my family i think it's a very way it's a very good way as well to see about that like mistakes and stuff is like try to make different mistakes what does that mean in the context like if i don't repeat the same mistakes because if not you're not you're not growing at least in that mistake try to learn as possible don't make that mistake and learn different mistakes you know like do different mistakes so i think yeah i think mistakes and failures that that's a word that people a lot are very scared to say it and for me it's very dramatic because there's no failures you know for me it's just, just mistakes mistakes and mistakes and as well you can see look for i'm going to use one of the greatest of, of all the time in, in my sport uh, a lesson that sometimes soccer or football is like that uh, remember the 208 champions league final in moscow chelsea against uh, against uh, manchester united you know who scored the first goal cristiano ronaldo who was the mvp who was the golden uh, ball on, I think, Golden Boot as well of the year, Cristiano Ronaldo. He missed a penalty and they still won. Soccer is like that. So it's a, Soccer is not about, again, heroes and stuff. We need to learn that this sport, the same as others, it's about grace areas. Grace, grace, grace. We like in a, in this society and then in those systems to just be polarized, you know, or you are... Uh, green or you are blue or you are like completely just to not mention the other colors but it's like that you need to be on the level in the right like man you can take good things from each side and each side has their flaws like all of us you know there's even Leo Messi Leo Messi is the goat of the goats of the goats and then he has things that he needs to improve and he knows you know he hasn't won the World Cup for example so like there's going to be always something nothing is enough you know so I'm very tired of like listening to those words about failure and success and stuff even though competition brings bring you that because of course if I do an interview after Thursday and I'm eliminated I'm going to be completely frustrated, sad, angry, and I'm going to tell you that it was a complete failure for this organization, and next year we need, we need to, to bounce back, you know? But that's that's the what competition gives you, is how much you can grow, you know? You have informed us that you are coming back to the Galaxy in 2023. How much longer do you want to keep playing this sport, and do you want the Galaxy to be your last team? As long as my body answers to my mind. That, that's something as well that I learned from my father and my grandfather is as long as your body still reacts <laughs> in the correct way when the mind tells the the orders, you know, the commands, you can you can keep playing, of course, in a, in a very high level. So, yeah, we'll see. And of course, being here in this organization, I'm completely happy. I'm very committed to the cause. I'm very grateful. I'm very responsible about my situation. Then we'll see. We'll see. Of course, I want to to maintain my, my relationship with this organization as long as we can. I want to finish up here the last couple of minutes with something I call the rapid fire quiz. And I only do this with the very best players I have ever interviewed. So I've done this with Ronaldo Fenomeno, with Zlatan, with Paolo Maldini. And I, I love doing this. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I will. So, Thank you. Thank you for considering me one of the best. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> First off, what have you achieved in soccer that you are most proud of and why? Mm, showing that you don't have to be the most talented to be in the top of the top of the top. 
who is the player that you have most admired in your career and why? That's a very good question because the, my favorite player ever was Ronaldo the Phenomenon. But like in admiration, I'll say I'll say Cristiano Ronaldo for sure because in the way that he has pushing himself to be on the top and still people don't want to give him credit because it's not the most talented. You know, there's there's other one that it's. It's more talented in certain ways, in different ways. But for me, talented is not only what you do with the ball. It's what you do with this and with this. And people don't want to recognize that because, yeah, if Cristiano Ronaldo show you that he can be on the top and there's a lot of people that they don't want to push themselves to be that great, you know, it's like pointing the, the failures, you know, what Cristiano Ronaldo did. Another example, like Roger Federer is my favorite uh, uh, tennis player ever. But someone that I admire, a part of both difference, more is not Rafa Nadal as well in the way that he has competed, in the way that they create that legacy between each other. It's like they live from each other. That's why you saw when Roger Federer retired, how Rafa was very devastated, you know, because they feed from each other. So yeah, Cristiano Ronaldo. What is your favorite goal that you have ever scored in your career and why? I always answer to that question, the debut, because without the debut, nothing of this would have happened, you know? And, it's, and not everyone can say that in their professional debut, score a goal. You know, it's not normal. It's not common. So, and the other one that I'm going to mention for sure is the goal that I scored in my first World Cup against France because of my family history that my granddad scored a goal against France as well in the World Cup. Italy. Who is the best defender you have ever faced and why? Uh, I'll say Thiago Silva. Why? Because the intelligence that he showed, he has the, aggressive, the aggressiveness and the defensive skills, don't get me wrong, but the in intelligence about reading the game, he's one step in front of you. And that's one of my skills as well, because I'm not the quickest, I'm not the strongest, I'm not the fastest, I'm trying to be always one step in front of someone to try to score. But he was like in the same or even 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 like ahead of me. So that, that intelligence, yeah, so it was the toughest for me. Because then you can face very tough and strong as defenders, but they're not as intelligent, so you can just take an advantage, you know? But for him, in the few times I played against him in Brazil, it was very, very tough. Couple more questions here. Appreciate all this. Who is the best teammate you have ever had and why? It's very difficult. It's very difficult. But names that come to my mind, I will just throw names. You know, it's uh, Ramon Morales, Patricia Bra, Miguel Ayun, uh, Keylor Navas, Sergio Ramos, Luca Modric, uh, Pepe, Iker Casillas. Mm, yeah, I think with those. Is there any particular common thread in those players that you say them? Yeah, because all, all of them, they all had a very big influence, personal. They they took their time and we, and even though that probably with some of them, it wasn't like long relationship, but I like they they took their time to try to to help me in certain ways, you know, in certain moments of my life. Those players in particular. Who's your favorite player in the world today, and why? Uh, today, my favorite player today. Hmm. Uh, my top three will be uh, Luka Modric, Kylian Mbappe, and Kevin De Bruyne. Any particular reason? Because I like watching them play. You know, a part of they play very good. I will pay a ticket to go and watch them play for sure. Yeah. Javier Hernandez and the LA Galaxy meet Crosstown Rival LAFC in the MLS quarterfinal Thursday night, 1025 p.m. Eastern on FS1 and Fox Deportes. Javier, thank you as always. That was a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you very much, Ben. Take care.
Now, here's my book talk interview with Ryan O'Hanlon. It's time for another round of book talk, and our guest is ESPN's Ryan O'Hanlon, the author of the just-released book, Net Gains, Inside the Beautiful Games Analytics Revolution. Ryan, congrats on a terrific book, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for saying that, and thanks for having me. Also, thank you for you know lending a couple about a hundred words of, of your own language onto the back of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. It, it actually was a really nice part of my vacation in June to Greece, where I read uh, an advanced copy of your book and just really enjoyed it. Um, and for a lot of reasons, I followed the topic of soccer analytics somewhat closely. I am not an expert expert. Uh, and yet I, I know of the people involved and the the ideas that have developed in recent years, and I learned a lot of new things from your book, which is always a good thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so I wanted just to ask to start, how did you want to approach writing about soccer analytics when you first engaged on this book? Yeah, so I think it's it's like almost useful to go back a further step, which is probably, it's probably something you have had to deal with too. Like when you write about soccer, especially when you're writing about it, like you, you know, writing for Sports Illustrated or even for probably your newsletters the same way. And when I was working at Grantland and The Ringer, um, it's like, it's kind of tough to like calibrate like your voice and, and like, what assumptions do you make that the reader understands, you know? Um, and like, are you defining what the Champions League is in every piece you write? And then like explaining how revenue is distributed among teams and then what relegation is, you know, and then you, then it's like, you've just cleared your throat and you've wrote an entire piece. So like, I've had, <laughs> I've had that practice for like a while now, kind of figuring out like, what's the range where I write a piece and it's like uh, equally like approachable to someone who is vaguely interested in soccer, but also like is still useful for someone who like, you know, watches 15 games a week or whatever. So I think that practice kind of helped me with this. And I think, you know, I'm definitely a like writer journalist first who got interested in this aspect, which I think um, rather than kind of a data person who decided to start writing about it and then kind of went backward. So I think like, what I tried to focus on, I think initially I wanted to, you know, it's like, obviously Moneyball is like the, the er example. And I didn't want to just like copy Moneyball exactly, but it's a similar book. Like there's no getting around that. So I think like, you know, when you're writing a book, it's like my first instinct was, okay, let me find one story, right? One team, one person. And then I can like hang all of these different analytical ideas off of them as I write the book. And then my agent was just like, just don't do that. Just like write about everything, which is like daunting in some ways, but in some ways it's not. Cause then you're like, okay, if I'm writing about all this stuff, it's impossible for me to write about everything. So I'm just going to like pick the seven characters or I'll do, you know, I interviewed a ton more people than I wrote about in the book. <laughs> like, so, you know, uh, based on how the interviews go and the reporting goes, it kind of, that kind of narrows, narrows you down. And, um, yeah, I think it mostly ended up just being like, these were the best stories that I found. And then I tried to weave in the kind of analytics, um, with each one. I think you've done this well, and this is a challenge, right? In the sense of 
writing for an audience that is into soccer, will watch the World Cup, but maybe doesn't know that much about analytics. And then also for those of us who like, I know the names and, and most of the people in yeah. your book, but you're also associating them with particular ideas and things they've uh, studied and put out there publicly. Um, I, I, I guess one question I would have, and then I, I just listed a bunch of names that I know, Luke Bourne, <laughs> Ted Knudsen, Sarah Rudd, yeah. Ravi Ramanese, Tim Sparv, Jesse Marsh, Michael Cayley, Charles Reeps, yeah. Kevin Samantha, <laughs> Chris Anderson, Rasmus <laughs> Ankerson, Omar Chowdhury. Yeah. Like, these are all really impressive people. So I guess what I'm saying here is your selection has been very well taken. Like, what are some of the ideas that these people are associated with that you think stand out the most in the book, yeah. stood out the most to you? Yeah. So I think for me, like Luke Bourne, um, I've heard him described as just the quote, best person in sports analytics. Um, <laughs> so like that's, uh, you know, that's a good like guy to kind of start the book with, I think. But I think he was great because I don't know, he's like, the prime example of like, I think what kind of the issue with all of this is right. Like he is a guy that is like, has written very comprehensive and like very hard for me to understand academic papers, like of the value of different pitch surfaces or whatever. He did a famous one where they valued how much, uh, valued how good Messi is at walking. Um, <laughs> But he also like he then he was the head of analytics at Roma and then he was uh, vice president of basketball operations at the Kings. So it's like a combo of like the quote unquote nerd with like the guy who understands um, the power structures within a sports team and how you navigate that. And now he owns or co-owner of Toulouse and AC Milan um, with <laughs> Billy Bean. So for him, that for me, that that's kind of like the authority setting figure, right? And he can kind of, you know, he just tells a story in the book about, yeah, I worked at Roma and we made the Champions League semifinals. And some people were like, yes, win for analytics. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there and I'm just like, I had no effect whatsoever on how the team was playing or like the players we signed, you know? And I think that is, that's like roughly the theme of the book, right? It's like, there's a ton of new and interesting things that are being discovered about the sport but also like a lot of it's not being used. So for him in particular, I think, uh, I think that he was just a really good character that kind of like sets the tone and puts a lot of stuff in your head as I then go off into all these other directions. I do like the way that because you've picked certain people and told their stories, but also described their ideas, you're humanizing the ideas as mm -hmm. well without overdoing it. Um, in the book, you know, I met Ted Knudsen randomly on a train we happened to be on in Liverpool <laughs> in like 2017, maybe 2016. And okay. this was the guy I followed on Twitter. I just had never met him in person before. And he's a pretty fascinating <laughs> character. Yeah. What's the best way to describe Ted? <laughs> the sound that I just made, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, he basically took what was initially a Magic the Gathering blog and turned it into one of the, if not the most well-respected soccer consultancy in the world that every big team is now paying for his data. So I think that you can kind of fill in the blanks however you want there, but I, you wouldn't be wrong with whatever you fill in probably. <laughs> 
And I guess one question I have is you mentioned you get into other sports and where soccer fits in the context of analytics in other sports. How is mm -hmm. soccer different? I think from a structural perspective, in terms of like what, how difficult it is to measure it, you know, so baseball is the, the easiest to measure, measure, let's say, because it's roughly just like a batter versus a pitcher over and over and over again. The other things that are happening, the other players aren't really affecting that or like all the developments in analytics, the early ones were like, you know, batting average on balls in play or whatever, where it's like, yeah, it's just kind of random whether the fielder like catches the hard hit ball or whatever. So that may, that's relatively easy. Then basketball is like in between because basketball kind of is a similar, like you're putting something in a goal, right? I think they call it what like invasion sports is like the philosophical term, but there's uh, a three point line that like creates this like very clear area of value. And then also there's a shot clock that forces you to have, you know, each team has a hundred something possessions per game, a hundred shots per game. And then, you know, NFL, I think is similar to soccer in terms of it's very hard to like credit anyone in a given situation. Like, is it the quarterback that made this happen? Or is it like the receiver that like ran a perfect route? Is it the coach that called the play? Is it that the defense is just terrible, you know? Um, but there's still four downs um, and there's very clear, like we don't have to get into the weekly fur fur over fourth down decisions in the NFL, but like it's very easy as a, to make a win probability model about this fourth down decision-making, which is essentially impossible to do for any coaching decision in soccer. And then soccer is all the way at the bottom where it's like, okay, you can, can't use your hands. There's offsides. And then like fouls and that's it. Those are the only rules. And like, you could essentially, this basically happened right in the world cup with Austria and Germany. Um, you could essentially just kick off and then just have both teams stare at the ball for 45 minutes and no one would be able to do anything. Like you couldn't stop them from doing that. Right. So like, how do you, I don't like, what do you do with that? Right. Like, how do you get your arms around that? How do you measure it? How do you, find value when like the situations are so dynamic and changing all the time. So in terms of set pieces, I wanted to ask you about sort of where we are right now in the analytics and the study of set pieces and the impact they have on games. How much are teams currently doing? Is it more than a few years ago? Is it going to be even more in the future? It's definitely more than a few years ago, but it still seems like it could be way more than it currently is um at least when you look to like what happened in like denmark where all the teams were just scoring like 15 extra goals a season um and i think one of the interesting things that i when i talked to jesse marsh for the book um another name that you brought up and someone you've written about many times and uh, i went to college with um he is very clear about how much he values set pieces and he even counts like kickoffs and various other like vaguely set piece things as set pieces. But I think the question is like, it's pretty hard to train set pieces because it's incredibly boring. Like it's not like it's by definition, most of the players are not going to be involved and they're just going to be standing around repeating kind of rote stuff over and over again. So I think it is a little bit of an issue of, like 
getting buy-in and training it effectively, I think is, is, is harder than just deciding to do it. And I think Jesse mentioned, I don't know if this is in the book, but sometimes he'll just like tell the players, Oh, you guys like draw up three set places, set pieces tonight and we'll train them tomorrow. Um, so just like trying interesting little tricks like that, I think could make a difference. But I, I do think that's maybe an underappreciated part of how kind of difficult it is to train these things. I do remember, and this is even four years ago at the World Cup, doing a story on Ted Knutson and set pieces because there, at that yep. World Cup, there were a lot of set piece goals. I think it was like the record, I believe. It was crazy. Like almost all of England's yeah. goals actually were on set pieces as they got yeah. to the semis. Do you think this World Cup will have set pieces play that big of a role again? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I guess there's a question of like, all the stories are about like set piece attacking, right? It's not, there's not that much out there about set piece defending. So I guess like there's a world where the focus is on focus on set pieces is somewhat canceled out by the focus on defending set pieces. But I think one, it's a lot harder to defend set pieces. Cause like, what do you do? Like you don't know what the team's planning. That's the whole point of why they're useful. Cause you, you know what you're doing and the other team doesn't. Um, but it, it seems like at the Euros, there was a ton, ton of set piece action. Um, and it just seems like more, even more teams are going to have like very clear thought out set piece programs at the next World Cup. So honestly, like I feel like a set piece or VAR is going to determine the next World Cup more than like a piece of individual like brilliance is <laughs> depressing as that might sound. <laughs> <laughs> I, I realize that you don't necessarily get into this in your book, but I know that Greg Berhalter, the U.S. men's national team coach, is a data guy, certainly mm -hmm. likes to view himself as a data guy. And I guess my question for you would be, what do you know about how he approaches data and how that might be the case for the World Cup itself? Because I think fans might be interested to know some details on that, if you know of them. Yeah, I mean, I know that, like he definitely like i remember him talking about how he was uh he read the german uh tactics blog spielver lagerung do you remember that site <laughs> like back in the day when he was a crew a columbus crew coach he he mentioned that and they they were sort of attack they are like a tactics slash kind of little bit of analytics site so he clearly has like a He's not like wedded to sort of traditional thinking. It, I think is was one thing you could definitely say. And uh, you know, some of the things I've heard, I I've heard some stuff about him using um, data to assess players and stuff like that. But at the same time, it's like I don't know. One example for me where like data is really useful is uh, goalkeeping um, mm -hmm. and. I think of goalkeeping, I mentioned in the book, there's the Bill James quote about how the difference between a 300 hitter and a 275 hitter is just a matter of record because the difference is actually one hit every two weeks. So like if you're watching the games, you are it's impossible for you to tell the difference. But like a 300 to a 275 hitter is like a huge deal in terms of like how they're viewed. And I think keeping is the same, right? You have to like watch every shot a keeper faces. You can't just watch a handful of games and assume you have a good sense. And I think we have enough data to suggest that Matt Turner is like at absolute worst, an average, like high level shot stopper and 
uh, at best, Zach Steffen is a below average shot stopper. And I, I think, you know, I think if you're really kind of bought into the data aspect of it, I, I think that Turner would just be the clear starter. And it seems like that Berhalter has not does it. it my guess is that Stefan will be starting come cutter. So <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm guessing as well. So are you suggesting that at a press conference, I say to Greg Berhalter, so you're a data guy. Why Stefan over Turner? <laughs> yes. Yes. Please do that. <laughs> you could like throw my name out there if you want him to attack me instead of you. <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, where are we going with, with soccer analytics? Like when people ask you, what are sort of new things you're seeing that intrigue you and other people who study this? Yeah. So I think it's two things. The first part is like, there's just a ton of just like basic stuff that I feel like teams can, can be doing um, just to be one set pieces, but two, there's just, Ted talks about this a lot. Um, it's useful to like prevent you from making mistakes basically. Like it's, you can't guarantee you're going to find the next, you know, messy or whatever, but you can like, there are some sort of warning signs in, in underlying data that you can find on players that'll prevent you from, you know, doing what Manchester United do year after year, after year, after year. So like implementing some of the basic stuff is still like, that's still very much like not being done by most teams, but in terms of like the frontiers of it, I mean, the next thing is like based on tracking data because the, there's a, the Cruyff quote I have in the book is basically the average player at most will have possession of the ball for three minutes. Of course, in nine, of, of course, in ninety of <laughs> throughout the course of a ninety minute game. Um, so, like based on that, like what makes you a good player is what you're doing without the ball, right? Or in those other eighty seven minutes, and we've gotten amazing at tracking everything that happens with the ball, but where tracking data is now available in most of the major leagues, but it's still only available within the leagues. So like Liverpool can't get tracking data from the Bundesliga. And if you're scouting players, like it's almost useless to not have that. And then with the tracking data, it's like, you know, it's 25, whatever. I don't know. I don't remember the exact number, but it's an absurd number of pictures are being taken of the field per second. And it's like, okay, it's just this wildly like, unruly mass of data points. And it's like, what do you do with that? But I think like, that's going to be the next, next way that teams get an advantage and teams are already kind of the smart teams already kind of digging into it. Ryan O'Hanlon is the author of the just released book, Net Gains Inside the Beautiful Games Analytics Revolution. I've read it. I really enjoyed it. I think you should buy it. Ryan, congratulations. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Javier Hernandez and Ryan O'Hanlon, as well as producer Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. <laughs>